Let me pray and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we give you praise as the Father of lights and the giver of every good and perfect gift from above. Lord, the one who gives us even at times the good gift of trials to work in us that which you will, Lord, to make us um, steadfast in faith and perfect, lacking in nothing. Lord, we, we pray that even now as we enjoy the good gift of your word, as we think about the letter to the Hebrews and the letter of James, Lord, would you guide us? Would you uh, use your spirit to help us to see marvelous things in your word and that you would help us to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word and to have your word and our faith in your word seen in our uh, deeds of faith and our words, Lord, that would be used to honor and glorify you and to edify others. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, well, to kind of introduce this class on the letter to the Hebrews and the letter to uh, the letter that James wrote, um, the thing that I saw that was kind of similar and uh, and connected these two letters is that they're both written to people that are suffering, that are experiencing challenges. Some of those challenges are circumstantial. Some of those challenges are because of their faith. But what does faith look like? How does faith respond to suffering? How should we respond to trials in our lives? Um, So um, that, of course, is an important question. How should we respond? But then also to think about how are we tempted to respond? So even thinking about that as we go, realizing that in some way these letters are written to people that are asking those questions and struggling and maybe are tempted to give up in their faith in God. Maybe they're tempted to doubt God's goodness in the face of suffering. And so these letters are written to help those people, help them to persevere. And so in the midst of your own trials and your own suffering, what truths do you need to hold fast to and hold on to? Um, and how, how should you respond even if you failed to do that? What's the right response if you've failed spectacularly? In the midst of suffering, you haven't responded in faith. You've responded in a fleshly, worldly way. How, how, how should you respond if that's the situation you find yourself in? Those are the questions that um, these two letters Uh, answer for us. So let's just think about it for for a minute and don't try to just remember what you think Hebrews says to answer those questions or what James says to answer those questions, but what do you think is kind of an ordinary temptation to to suffering in our lives? Maybe even particularly suffering for our faith. How are you tempted? To respond. First of all, a question comes in my mind. Like when I was sick, I was thinking, why, even though I'm, uh, I want to be pastor, I want to serve, I submit my life to God, mm-hmm. God is doing this thing to me. Yeah. Uh, so I was thinking, but uh, 
thinking like that is kind of also same. Like, yeah. So someone realized, like I share with someone and he helped me to like not think like that. Wonderful. So you're tempted to question. Maybe you're tempted to question God. Why are you doing this to me, God? Why are you uh, allowing these things to happen to me? And I want to serve you. I want to honor you. But now these trials are keeping me from really doing that, maybe. Maybe you're tempted to think that way. Sure. Maybe that it's unfair. Yeah. Like, I don't deserve this. Yeah, this is not fair. I don't deserve this pain, this trial, this suffering. Or maybe you've already experienced other sufferings. You're like, I kind of already did my <laughs> time, you know? Yeah. I, I, I've had enough. I can't keep going. Like, this is just one trial on top of another, on top of another. Mm-hmm. And maybe you're tempted to wonder, can I keep going? I'm not sure if I can keep going like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And grumbling. Uh, yeah. Grumbling Excellent. Yeah. And also, like, our behavior changes to other person also like yeah like in congregation or in family because we have like kind of situations mm-hmm. and the circumstances so we are angry and we grumble yeah our behavior changes like toward god also toward uh, others excellent yeah we grumble and complain at god and we grumble and complain and maybe get angry and fight with other believers in um in our church or in our family. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, those are all things that I think that we'll see some, something related to those things in these letters. And, uh, and hopefully we'll see what the right response is, how to fight those temptations and how, what truths help us to persevere in faith. We'll see that in both these letters, I think. So let's look first at Hebrews. Hebrews we've been studying over the last two years in our midweek Bible study. But sometimes when you're zooming in on just a few verses, you can lose the kind of the forest, you lose the forest for the trees. That means that you kind of get so focused on the little details here that you miss the big picture. And so hopefully today you'll kind of get a big picture. It's been really helpful for me, even having studied this book over the last two years and really going through it week by week as a church it was helpful for me to wrestle with how do you put the whole book together and what's the big idea? So let's think about um, Hebrews for a second. So the author, he doesn't ever uh, mention who he is. He doesn't clearly identify himself and he doesn't clearly identify his audience. So the letter being called to the Hebrews was added later um, and it was based on reading the letter and trying to assume who it was written to. There's uh, no clear indication of who the author is or who his audience is. And even as early as the time of Origen, who was an early church father, he died in the year 254, around that time. So even just a couple hundred years from the time of Christ, he said, whoever wrote the letter, only God knows. We get some clues from the letter that this person was... Close to the time of Jesus, it mentions Timothy at the end. Some people ask, is that Timothy is in Paul's um, disciple, or is it a different Timothy? Not sure, but he does say in chapter 2 that he is not an eyewitness. He says that these things had been passed on to him by those who heard them. So he's not a direct eyewitness. At least it doesn't seem. Otherwise, he'd be like Paul and say, you know, I've seen the risen Christ and he spoke to me, you know, or something like that. 
So one question people ask about Hebrews is then why is it meant, why is it included in our Bible if he's not an eyewitness? Typically the New Testament letters are written by uh, direct eyewitnesses or someone who wrote on behalf of a direct eyewitness, like Luke. But um, one author uh, writes that the epistle, even without identification of its author, it manifests a peculiar glory of God in Christ to his people. In other words, it is self-authenticating. It's inherent, it's, that means what's already in it, in the letter. Uh, God-given authority that we see in the letter is recognized and has been recognized by Christians over the centuries. Those who have the Spirit of God see the things of God in this letter. And so it's been included for a long time. And in the early church, as they were trying to discern which of these letters it was, was canon, which were uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit. They were not quick to add books. They were slow. They were careful to recognize the authority of these books, and uh, Hebrews was included. If you want to know more about that, I can uh, let you know about how did we get the books of the Bible we've got. But it was probably written before AD 70 because it talks a lot about the sacrificial system and the high priests and things like that and in AD 70 the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem and it doesn't make any mention of there not being a temple anymore in fact it seems like the opposite was a temptation people were tempted to go back and to offer sacrifices or to go back to Judaism Um, so the situation that the letter is written into is that Judaism was a legal religion in the Roman Empire but in the the Roman Empire, the um, Christian religion was kind of seen as kind of like a, a cult. And so there was a temptation for those that had been Jews who'd become Christians to turn back, and that would spare them further distress and shame and dishonor because it was Judaism was accepted within the Roman Empire, but Christianity was this new thing, newer thing. At the same time, it was a temptation to go back because these believers longed for the kind of concrete hope and assurance of their forgiveness and their standing before God that had been uh, part of the Jewish religion. You know, you could go and you could offer the sacrifice at the temple and have confidence that you had, um, you know, that you were doing what God had called you to do in order to have your sins forgiven. And so, Those that had been formerly Jewish um, but were now believers faced hardship for following Christ. And some of that was internal and some of that was external. So we read in the letter that they were facing different kinds of persecution. It wasn't all um, the same level of severity. Some people were just publicly reproached or they were mistreated and afflicted. Maybe that was personally, or maybe it was just others in the, in the Christian community that they were a part of. Some had been thrown into prison. Even by the end of the letter, you read about Timothy has been released from prison. Some people had their property plundered. And so in the midst of all of this, they were tempted to turn away from Jesus and to turn away from the faith. And so it's important to kind of think, what would give a person facing that kind of thing, what would give them the strength to carry on in the face of those difficulties? And how would a a pastor, how would he spur on struggling believers to persevere and to not fall away? That's the letter that Hebrews is. It's written to those that were tempted to go back, 
Uh, and it's intended to help them persevere in the faith in Jesus, to hold fast. And the author basically employs two tools to do this. On the one hand, he offers encouragements based on the fact that Jesus is actually better than everything they could possibly turn to. So encouragement. And he's going to unpack how Jesus is so much better. That's most of the letter. But in the midst of that, he sprinkles in another tool to help people persevere. Maybe a, maybe a somewhat more surprising tool. Instead of encouragement, he sprinkles in warnings. He warns the people that turning away from Jesus would be devastating to their eternal state. And so you could summarize the whole letter of Hebrews in this way. Simply, you could say Jesus is better, but we'll get to the full melodic line by the end of, uh, end of our time. So the first thing that Jesus is compared to in, uh, in chapter 1 is, is to form a revelation, and Jesus is a better revelation. But before we jump there, if you would, turn with me to uh, Hebrews 13. Turn to the very end of the letter. Because this is interesting to know, and I think it will be helpful. If you look at almost the last verse, he says, I appeal to you, brothers. This is verse 22. I, to bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. And so here, he kind of, he sums up the whole letter as a brief word of exhortation, which is a word that's used, or a series of words that's used to describe kind of a sermon. So in some sense, the, the, the letter is really a sermon that's written to those people. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And let me ask, Carson, will you read that out for us? Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Thanks. So these verses at the beginning, they introduce kind of a summary or kind of like the very kind of basic message of the letter. The whole book and its major theological foundation that Jesus is superior. We're going to see he's more, more than just he's superior to the angels. But here you see he's superior to the prophets of old who spoke on behalf of God. And we see that he makes purification for sins and that he sat down. And that's kind of a key thing that he sat down means that the job's done. Or as he, Jesus himself, said it from the cross, it is finished. Purifications for sins has been de dealt with. And we see here God has spoken, and that theme of God speaking is actually a theme throughout the, the letter to the Hebrews. And we see that he's spoken fully and finally through his supreme son, who's accomplished salvation for his people. 
And here he's compared to the angels. That's the first blank you have to fill in. That In chapters 1 and 2, he's described as being better than angels. And the reason you might be wondering why angels? Well, angels were understood to be God's messengers. They delivered God's word. They were the ones that brought the revelation to people. They acted on God's behalf. They acted with God's authority as they delivered his message to his people. But the author painstakingly argues that Jesus is even greater. He's better. He's a better revelation from God than they ever were. We see that even there in that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He's not just a messenger. He reveals God to us. He is God. And this is where we get the first warning. At the beginning of chapter 2, he says, listen closely to him. Listen closely to him. Don't drift away from what he has spoken to you. So since Jesus is a better messenger for God, we should pay much closer attention to what he has to say. We should obey it or else we'll face just retribution. So here we see the first warning. This is a warning. So he's encouraged them. Jesus is greater, so you better listen to him. We see that encouragements and warnings kind of go hand in hand. Here, what he's saying is it's like the difference between someone who comes as an emissary of the king, kind of a messenger of the king, or if the king himself sent the prince to come and speak to you. And you should listen to both. You should listen to the messenger of the king, but how much more should you listen to the king's own son that's sent to speak for him? Further, the son is better than the angels because he identifies with those he came to speak to. So the angels just remained angels. But the Son took on flesh and became like us in every single way, except without sin, so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest. Which is where the author turns next. Jesus didn't just come to deliver a message, he came to be a mediator between God and man. To be the middleman between God and man. To be our great high priest. Any questions about that first section, chapters 1 and 2? In some ways, the applications are pretty evident because you're hearing me kind of say them like, listen to Jesus is kind of the main application of this first section. We should pay close attention what he has to say. So let's jump into the second section. And this is the bulk of the, it introduces the body of the sermon. There at the beginning of chapter three, verse one, he says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. So the author calls us to, to contemplate, to meditate upon Jesus. And that's one of the ways that he wants them to persevere, that he's going to help them persevere is by thinking about Jesus. And that will help us persevere in the faith too. How is Jesus identified though? What titles does he give in verse 1 of chapter 3? Anybody? The Apostle. The Apostle. This is, I think, the only place in the Bible where it refers to Jesus as an apostle. But an apostle is just a, a messenger who's sent on behalf of someone. So Jesus' apostles are his authorized messengers. And of course, he's been talking about how Jesus is a better revelation from God. He's a better messenger because he's God himself. And so he's the one sent to deliver the message of the gospel. But he's not just the apostle. He's also high a high priest of our confession. So he's the messenger, like a prophet or an apostle, and he's a high priest or a mediator. 
And throughout this whole section here, chapters 3 to almost the end of 10, the author looks back on all of Israel's past and he shows how in various different ways, in different individuals, institutions, promises, that in all of them, ultimately, Jesus fulfills them in a far greater way than was fully anticipated. Basically, chapters 3 through 10 are an extended consideration of Jesus. He's doing the very thing that he's calling them to do. Consider Jesus Christ as a great high priest of a better covenant, with better promises, with a better hope. And all of that is to say, don't fall away from faith in him. Persevere. Keep going. So, firstly, he co- he's compared to two major figures in, the, in Israel's history. That's your your uh, blank under 2a he's better than Moses and he's better than Joshua so if you think about the old testament Moses was a faithful servant of God he was God's uh, over God's household in the same ways um, there was in some ways sorry there was no one else like Moses ever in history of Israel because in Deuteronomy 18 it talks about how a greater a prophet like Moses would come but then at the end of Deuteronomy it says none like Moses who has ever come who knew the Lord face to face Moses had a unique and intimate relationship with God but Jesus is still considered better than Moses because he's not a servant in God's household he's the son the heir of the house Also, the people of Israel didn't listen to Moses. So Jesus is greater than Moses because those that were during the time of Moses, they refused to listen and go into the promised land. And that's where the second warning comes from. He says in warning two, he says, watch out for unbelief. Instead, enter the rest. The rest was being the the promised land where they were called to go in. So the author says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He says, unbelief, a lack of faith in Jesus will lead you to fall away. So persevere and take care that you don't have unbelief in your heart. Moses was a faithful servant, but the people's stubbornness kept them from experiencing the fullness of God's promises. And so Joshua took Moses' place, and he actually did lead the people into the land, into the land of Canaan. But the people didn't get the ultimate rest that God promised. They didn't get the rest that they desired. The promise of eternal rest actually remains open to anyone and everyone who will enter it by persevering in the faith and following the greater Joshua, (coughs) Jesus. Next, the author turns to Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. So, Jesus is better than Aaron, and the Levitical priesthood is your next blank, Aaron, 2b. In many ways, these next few sections are, uh, are the central theological issue of the letter. Jesus' high priestly role. So that ties the next four breaks together, the, the rest of this section, um, B, C, D, and E of two. It ties those all together. Everything after that is, is uh, everything included in section 3 about Jesus as a better object of faith is simply just applying the fact that Jesus actually secures our salvation. That he has accomplished purification for sins that we saw right in the beginning in those introductory verses. And so we have warning 3 there in, in chapter 5, 11 through 6, 8. 
And it's the third warning, and it, it basically just says to them they need to grow up, not turn back. They should know these things about Jesus already that he's going to share with them. They, in fact, should not need to be taught them. They should be teaching other people them. It's a striking indictment. These are, remember, these are people suffering and struggling, but yet the author still warns them and, in fact, rebukes them for being babies in Christ, not mature grown-ups in Christ. Now, someone might still be a little confused because Jesus technically, according to the Old Testament, someone who read this might have thought, how can Jesus be a great high priest? Because he shouldn't be a high priest at all. He's not part of the priestly line. He's not part of the tribe of Judah. He's not from Levi. I mean, he's from Judah, not Levi. And only the Levites were supposed to be the priests. And the author explains Jesus is actually from a better order of priests, a better group of priests, the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was mentioned in Genesis 14, but then he comes up again in Psalm 110, which is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And there he's compared to Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the king, his name means the king of righteousness. And he was the king of a place called Salem or Shalom, like the word peace. And so he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And that's That's the order from which Jesus comes, he says. In some ways, Melchizedek is like a shadow. He points to a greater king, a king of peace and righteousness. And Jesus is that king and priest. And more than that, since we have a new priesthood, since Jesus brings about a new priesthood, a new order, it means a change in the law and the change in the covenant. This is a very technical section, and you might... Your head might be spinning. You might be thinking, oh my goodness, what are you you talking about? Well, fear not. When we get to chapter 8, the author spells it out for us simply. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. This is like the point in the sermon where the the author, where where the preacher says, and my main point is this. Look what he says in 8.1. Now the point of what we're saying is this. Basically, if you've, if you've got lost in the weeds of the priesthood of Jesus and compared to Aaron and the Levites, what does he say? We have such a high priest and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. He's a minister in the holy places, not on, in, the, in the temporary holy place on earth, but in the heavenly places with God himself. Every high priest has been appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices And Jesus has done just that. It's in 8.5 where he talks about copies and shadows of the heavenly things. He's talking about types. And so what we see here is that Jesus is not just a, a copy or a shadow, but he is the true reality of the pattern that was laid out in the old covenant. And that Jesus and the new covenant, the new covenant which had been promised even in the old by prophets like Jeremiah is a great high priest of a new order, a new covenant. What's the point of all of this theology? Why is he telling them all this? It's simple. The new is better than the old. So don't turn back. Don't drift away. Don't turn away from Jesus. He is better. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how much you suffer for following him, follow him. He's better. 
He gives us in, in chapter 9, we, we see that he gives us a better access to God. So there under uh, D, it's access to God there, the, the blank. Under the old covenant, the people couldn't even go into the holy of holies. They could not go and draw near to God. Only the high priest could do that. He could only enter that place where God was, his presence was manifested. He could only do it once a year. And he always had to have new sacrifices for his sins and the sins of his people. We learned about that when we heard um, Aaron preach from Leviticus 16. But Jesus offers us direct access to God anywhere, anytime. And he does that because he offers a better sacrifice for sins. That's your next blank. Better sacrifice for sins in 10, 1 through 18. Jesus has secured an eternal redemption. He's cleansed us, not merely outwardly or ceremonially, but inwardly. He, clears our, he cleans our conscience. And he does this by offering himself once for all. Not repeatedly, once for all. And he perfects us for all time, the author says. Friends, this is glorious news. That those types and shadows pointed to something Incredible that Jesus, God's own son, took on flesh, became our mediator, became the one who goes between us and God, and then offered a sacrifice, not for his own sins because he had none. He offers himself, his own precious blood as a sacrifice for our sins so that we can come to God, so that we can actually approach him and draw near to him. How should we respond to such amazing news? And that's where the rest of the sermon goes. Any questions at this point about the second section? A lot of theology to just say, keep pressing on, keep going. It's glorious. So let's consider what does the right response to this look like? And we see that under section three, that Jesus is a better object of faith. I, I, I was torn between faith and worship, but I think... The idea is persevering in faith, so I put that here. He says, therefore, brothers, this is 2.19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, that's summing up everything he's been saying so far about Jesus' mediatorial work. Since that's true, since we have confidence, what should we do? He tells us in 19 and following that we should draw near, that we should hold fast, and that we should stir up one another. We should encourage one another with these things. In other words, persevering in the faith and helping others to do the same. Not to drift away from Jesus. And we see in chapter 10, verses 24 through 25, that central to that, central to persevering in the faith, central to drawing near to God and following him in faith, is gathering together with other believers and helping them to follow him. Look at verses 24 and 25. These are probably very familiar, but they're key, and it's really helpful to see them in 
the context of this whole letter, that because Jesus has opened the way to God, he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you, say, as you see the day drawing near. So, the church gathering is one of the primary means that God helps us to fight the good fight of faith. And when we're suffering, to persevere. So if you're suffering and you cut yourself off from this means that God has given you, you're going to hurt yourself spiritually and you may drift away. The author then warns us in in 26 and following, he says, don't give up, but endure. If we know the truth, but we refuse to listen to it, if we refuse to walk in it, Jesus' sacrifice doesn't benefit us. In fact, he says that to know the gospel, but to not to live in accordance with the gospel, is to trample the Son of God underfoot, and to treat Christ's blood as if it was unholy, as if it was profane, and to outrage the Holy Spirit of grace. Rather than that, we must give, we shouldn't give up, but we should press on in faith and run with endurance. Run with endurance. That's their 3B. That's 11 and 12. It's all about running with endurance. Chapter 11 gives us that famous section about the, the examples to follow. All the people in the old covenant that persevered in faith. Even though they were suffering. Even though they were facing hardships. Even though they couldn't see the things God promised. Even though they seemed far off. They persevered in faith looking to the city that is to come. And so we see the examples to follow and they culminate there in chapter 12 verses 1 through 3. This great cloud of witnesses that spurs us on. Who's at the forefront of them? Jesus. Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance looking to Jesus. That's how we persevere in faith as we look to Jesus. We fix our eyes on him. He's the ultimate example of faithful endurance. He didn't just endure hardship in this life. He experienced and endured the cross where he bore the wrath of God against our sins in order that we might be exalted with him. And he's been raised and exalted to the right hand of God. Not only do we follow these examples as we run with endurance, we endure discipline. Discipline from the Lord. This is going to connect with James too, that these struggles that we experience, they are from God's hand. These challenges are God's loving discipline of his children. They're used to train us in righteousness, and so we should endure discipline from the Lord. Sometimes our trials and suffering are God's way of disciplining us and conforming us more and more into the image of Christ. They train us (coughs) in righteousness, and so we must persevere. And we do this together. Verses 12 through 17, where the race is not a solo event, it's a team sport. And so we should endure together. He says we should see to it that no one else fails to obtain the grace of God. He says that we should strive for peace together as a church and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we help one another. We work together for peace and holiness and we work to help finish the race and make it to heaven. And he says once again, the, the old covenant, he contrasts the old covenant Israel when they went to Sinai, which was fearful and there was trembling and much, uh, it was terrifying. He compares that to what we've come to. We haven't come to Mount Zion. We've, 
we haven't come to Mount Sinai, sorry, we've come to Zion. The heavenly Jerusalem, he's pointing us forward to that, that city that is to come that we've already in some sense, already but not yet experienced when we've put our faith in Jesus. Our, our faith is, is, is though we've already in some ways reached our final destination and yet we're longing to reach it and we're looking forward to it in hope and faith. And so it's here that he gives his final warning. Just like they shouldn't have refused God at Mount Sinai, we should not refuse him who's speaking to us from Mount Zion, from heaven. Instead, we should gratefully worship him. The warning is essentially the same as the other four. These, these, these uh, warnings are just five different ways of kind of saying the same thing. Don't refuse God. Don't fall away. Persevere in faith. Press on. Be grateful. Offer acceptable worship to God. What does that mean? Worship look like now, if you think the, the, the way they would have understood worship in the old covenant would have been primarily and kind of related to going to offer sacrifices, going to the temple, going to uh, Jerusalem. What do they do now? Where do they go now? How have they come to Zion and, and what kind of sacrifices should they offer? Well, chapter 13 kind of unpacks that for us. Sacrifices that are pleasing to God. We don't offer sacrifices to atone for our sins. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices that are pleasing to God. And if you look at chapter 13, there's so many commands in there. He says, pursue brotherly love in the church. Show hospitality to one another. Care for the persecuted. Guard marriages. Be sexually pure. Be content with what you have. Don't love money. Imitate godly leadership in your lives and in your church. Bear the reproach that Christ bore. Be mistreated like he was mistreated. Follow him. Do good. Share what you have with others. Submit to your pastors. Help their job to be a joy, not to be a pain. And be prayerful in it all. These are fairly ordinary acts of faithfulness. But they flow from our understanding of the gospel. We don't offer these things in order to be right with God, but because Christ has made us right with God. We offer these because Jesus has offered his self as once for all sacrifice for sins. And so that's the appropriate response to what Jesus has done for us. And it's how we persevere in the faith when it gets hard, when there's suffering, when there's trials. Ordinary faithfulness in the midst of challenges. Gathering together as a church. Listening to your leaders. Seeking to do others good, being hospitable, sharing what you have. So that's the letter of Hebrews. I'm going to come back and read the benediction of Hebrews at the end to close our time together. But any questions about Hebrews? My melodic line you can see there is Jesus is better. So keep following him by faith and don't drift away. The themes that we see is Jesus is better. You can see all the references to that. And then Jesus fulfills the Old Testament types, shadows and patterns. There's just so many I didn't list them. So applications from this are keep listening to and following Jesus. Basic, right? Help one another follow Jesus. We see that throughout this letter that we're called to help one another. And then finally, 
we sh- the right response is to offer acceptable worship that's pleasing to God. In lots of different ways. There's so many. Now, one question that you might have had, which I haven't answered, is like, the warning passages often trouble people. They kind of go, does that mean we can lose our salvation? It says, like, if you don't persevere in faith, you'll go to hell, essentially. And that it's dangerous to, once you know the truth, to disobey it is to kind of reject God. And then there's no sacrifice for your sins. You know, so some people go, you know, what does that mean? We don't have time to delve into the theology of that, but essentially what the way that I would understand and teach this is that the warnings are the means that God uses for us to persevere in the faith if we're genuinely in the faith. Those who persevere to the end will be saved. And the way, one of the ways that they persevere to the end is thinking, if I don't finish the race, I'm not going to be saved. Again, if you want to know more about that, I'm happy to, to flesh that out a lot more. There's different views on how to read these warnings, and I think that's the best one. Um, but yeah, let's jump to James then. So, James chapter 1. Turn to James chapter 1. I've summed this letter up as living by faith. Which kind of sounds similar to the last one, I guess, in some ways. But that's because he talks about a variety of different things in the life of a Christian and the church that really all just flow from faith. And faith is really prominent in the letter, as you'll see, and there's certain sections in particular. But just to give you a bit of background, the author introduces himself in chapter 1, verse 1, as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And... There are lots of people called James in the New Testament. In fact, two of the 12 disciples that followed Jesus were called James. And we, uh, best uh, kind of scholarly studies say that they don't think it's either of those. It's not either of the apostles. And he, he calls himself a servant of God, not an apostle. So that might suggest that it's not one of them. James one of the brothers, John, John's brother, he died early in the uh, life of the church, and so it's unlikely that he wrote it. Most believe that this letter was written by James, the brother of Jesus. He was a leading figure in the church in Jerusalem, the half-brother of Jesus, I should say. And so with that in mind, if that's true, what a privilege we have to have access to the teaching of someone who lived in Jesus's own family and knew him intimately, but at the same time is so humble to say that he's a servant of him, his brother, and to speak of him as the Lord of glory in chapter two, verse one. Astonishing to speak that way about your half brother. The audience, it says to the 12 tribes of the dispersion um, in Acts chapter 7 and 8, we see there was a great persecution that happened in Jerusalem. There was the murder of Stephen. And the believers were scattered. Everyone scattered and left Jerusalem. And if you remember the beginning of Acts, there's like thousands of Christians at this point. They, They scatter except the apostles, it says. Only the apostles remained in Jerusalem. 
And so this letter is likely very early on in the life of the church. It's probably written from James in Jerusalem to the scattered Jewish Christians that were experiencing persecution and poverty outside of Palestine. This fits with the content of the letter and it focuses on living by faith in the midst of trials and oppression and conflict. And so it probably means that this letter was written very early on, maybe as early as um, uh, 45 AD. It's likely that it happened before the Jerusalem council that happened in AD 49. Doesn't make any mention of that. And James was a leading figure there. That's some of that is um, a guess, but seems that way. And I would, I would say, you know, this letter is, is pretty amazing. It's quite different than a lot of the other New Testament um, epistles. It doesn't do, uh, you know, Paul's pattern tends to be, not always, but tends to be theolo- uh, theological beginnings. He gives a lot of doctrine at the beginning, and then he says, now with this doctrine in mind, this is the duty, this is the imperatives that you should do. These are the <coughs> commands you should follow. James kind of just weaves those two together. It's quite beautiful. It's different. Um, and we see uh, James's theology kind of in a very practical way. How do you live uh, by faith? And so we're going to see that. The first thing he talks about is faith in the midst of trials. So faith in trials. That's your first blank. First, he says that faith views our trials wisely. And we see that in those first verses of, uh, of chapter 1. Shockingly, faith actually considers or counts trials as joy. That is not natural to our flesh, right? But the person of faith actually counts trials joy. It's not because uh, they like pain and suffering. Why do they count them a joy? Well, it's because they recognize by faith that the testing of their faith has a purpose. That God wants to produce steadfastness in them. And steadfastness will eventually make us whole. It will make us complete. It will make us a single-minded kind of person. And that's a theme that we see throughout this letter. Single, whole, complete. That idea comes up again and again. And that's what God's like. God is single. He is whole. God sovereignly allows trials of all different kinds in order to purify us, to make us wholehearted in our faith and our devotion to him, so we can count them as a joy. So one question for you, an application is, how do you consider your trials? Do you see them as from God for your holiness? Or do they seem like a curse from God and uh, that God is tempting you? How do you respond to your trials? Oftentimes our trials leave us feeling at a loss for what to do, right? Sometimes we just don't, we don't even know what to do. I don't know what to do. I'm stuck. I'm, and if you find yourself in that situation, James tells us what to do. If any of you lack wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. The right response to trials is humble trust in God that leads to prayerful dependence upon God. But when we pray, when we pray and ask God for wisdom in those moments, we must be single-minded, not double-minded, he says. There's that theme again. We mustn't doubt God. We should trust God and believe God. Those who remain steadfast under trials, he says, will receive the crown of life from God. For He loves us. 
Verses 12 through 18 remind us that while God brings trials into our lives, we must not suppose that he brings temptations. Oftentimes those two are uh, connected, right? When we experience trials, we feel tempted to respond in sinful ways, not faithful ways. But here, James says that God never tempts us. Where does the temptation come from? It comes from our own hearts, by our own sinful desires. And then when they give birth, those desires that conceive, uh, are conceived in our hearts, they give birth to sins in our lives. And when sin grows up, it leads to death. God only gives good gifts. He only gives perfect gifts to his children. And that includes our trials. He never tempts us. And God never changes. So that's always true. Next, how should we respond? What does faith look like in trials? Well, it looks like obeying God's word. We see that at the end of chapter 1. We should respond prayerfully, asking God for wisdom, and then we should obey what he's told us to do. This includes putting away filthiness, and it, it, it involves meekly receiving God's word, he says. That we're not just to be hearers of the word, we're to be doers of the word. We should act upon God's word. Saving faith is in our hearts, but it is revealed in our works and our words. And that's what we see in the next two sections. First, faith in works, chapter 2. Before I move on, any questions from chapter 1? Okay, let's go on with chapter 2 then, faith in works. First, the first thing he, he says is that they should show no partiality. So believers should not show partiality or make distinctions between people based on their wealth or their status. That's a worldly way of assessing people. And maybe perhaps the Jews, as they were experiencing persecution and poverty, maybe they were tempted to think, oh, let's win over some of the rich folks that are coming to the gathering. Maybe they, they, you know, they were basically refugees and they wanted to play favorites with the rich um, amongst whom they had been dispersed. But James says God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God. So one question to consider is, are you tempted to make judgments about other people based on their appearances or their status, their wealth, their job, their education, their career, their cars, their clothes? It could be either to look on them with favor or it could be to look down on them. Both are wrong. James actually likens this kind of response, he likens it to putting yourself in the seat of judgment over them, in the place that God alone holds. Rather than looking down on the poor, they should show them mercy and serve them. And rather than favoring the rich, they should treat them like they would anyone else. And this is one of the ways that saving faith can be seen because saving faith works. Or our works are, reveal our faith. There you see at the end of chapter 2. James says that faith that produces no works or no good works can't save you. It's dead. It's demonic. It's from Satan. During the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, 
as these gospel truths were being rediscovered in God's word and being spread in a new way and in a powerful way, the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of justification was, was rediscovered that we are justified by faith alone. One is declared righteous before God by faith alone. But the reformers were very clear to add what James is teaching here in chapter 2. They said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. James says it in this way in chapter 2, verse 26, right at the end of the chapter. He says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So saving faith always produces works in our lives. We're not saved by works, but saving faith always works. Any questions about that? At what point do you think you can, evaluating someone else's life, say like, I don't think this person is saved because I don't see obedience in certain areas of their life to Mm. Christ? Yeah, that is a good question. Um, at what point can you say that? I think that's... Um, or, or should we use that to like... Yeah, I don't know. Well, James seems to be warning them in some sense and saying, if you say, hey, I've got faith, you worry about works, James. He says, your faith is worthless. Uh-huh. It's actually demonic. Demons believe like that, but they even tremble. But they don't actually, they don't do works of righteousness. They don't do good. And so I think that's an appropriate response to someone who claims to have faith in Jesus and to be a believer, but there's not evidence of it in their lives. Now, how do you say that? (laughs) I mean, I think there's in each case it would depend. There's different ways, but eventually, I mean, what we say when we, as a church, call someone to repent, as Jesus commanded us in Matthew 18, eventually we're saying. Your faith is not evident. Your, your faith is not saving because you're unrepentant in pursuit of sin. Yeah. Um, would you add anything, Michael? I, yeah, I think just to double tap on the church aspect of it. Mm-hmm. In some sense, it's not something we say to someone. Not that we couldn't. Yeah. But in a sense... Um, you know, the authority to say something like that is given to the church. Mm. To say it on behalf of heaven, yeah, is Jesus has given that responsibility to a whole church in the act of fellowshipping with someone or excommuning them. Yeah. Yeah. Just made me think of, like, extended family members who might say they're Christians, Mm. aren't a part of my church, maybe go to a church, doesn't have the same kind of membership. Yeah. I think we're going to get there later in in this next section in faith in words, actually. But like Christians can have really messy lives that's that's marked by serious sin. Mm -hmm. It's how do they respond when challenged about sin Mm -hmm. is a big part of the what what uh, works in terms of good works, of course, are are important. But what happens when they sin and you confront them in their sin? And that's where Jesus goes in in Matthew 18, you know. When one brother sins against another and you go speak to him, how does he respond? We'll see that. So 
Faith isn't only seen in our works, it's also seen in our words, and we see that in chapters 3 and 4. So faith in words is the fill in the blank for 3 there. First, he encourages them to tame their tongue. He says, not many of you should be teachers because those who teach will be judged with greater strictness, which is very sobering. So one application from the class everyone needs to commit to is praying for the pastors as we preach. We're going to be judged more strictly because we speak and our words matter. They, they, they're important. He compares the tongue to a bit in the mouth of a horse or a rudder at the bottom of a ship or a spark that starts a fire that sets a whole forest ablaze. The tongue is really small, but it's extremely powerful, and it has a huge effect. It sets the course of our lives. And so that old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is actually nonsense, according to James. Our words are powerful, and they have great effect. Our words guide our lives in some way, like the bit in the mouth of a horse, or the rudder at the bottom of a ship. Even the best of us, though, He talks about here in chapter 3, even the best of us are double-tongued. We get that idea, that theme again of being single-minded versus being divided, double-tongued. At times we use our tongues, right, to bless God. We praise God on Sundays when we gather, we, we pray to him. But then at other times, even sometimes in the same day, then we curse people. We speak poorly of people that are made in his likeness. So how should we respond? How should we respond that we're double-minded, we're double-tongued, we say things that we shouldn't say, and we fail at times to say things we should? Well, we should guard our tongues, tame our tongues. And that begins by recognizing how significant our words are. And maybe a question for you to reflect on later today over lunch is to consider what do your words, maybe even what are the worst of your words, maybe thinking, What do they reveal about your heart and what you believe? But if we were left kind of in despair, part of the solution comes up next as as James reflects on humbly seeking wisdom from above. We need God's wisdom to transform our hearts so that our words would be pure and blameless and show heavenly wisdom through our good conduct and through our words. He says that our good conduct will show whether our wisdom is from heaven or from hell. Whether it's from God or whether it's from demons. Earthly wisdom produces disorder. It produces bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. But heavenly wisdom produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. So it's worth considering and asking ourselves what kind of wisdom our words and our actions show that we're following? Are we characterized by purity and peacefulness and gentleness and reasonableness? Are we open to reason? Are we merciful with our words? When these are lacking, when we're not pursuing heavenly wisdom, we will almost certainly be experiencing worldly conflicts between us. And that's where James goes next in chapter 4. He says, repent, Repent of worldly conflict. Repent of worldly conflict. We might be tempted to think that quarrels and fights aren't that big of a deal. A little quarrel here or there, a little fight here or there. Maybe we don't think they're a big deal. And maybe the household you grew up in, that was pretty normal. Maybe the church you grew up in, sadly enough, was marked by bickering. Maybe 
the marriages that you were around, that was normal for you to people to speak harshly to one another and to argue. Maybe that you think of it as just a part of life. But listen to what James describes fights and quarrels as. He says in chapter 4 that it's war. It's murder. It's spiritual adultery. It's friendship with the world, which means enmity with God. If this characterizes you, if fighting and quarreling and bickering, what should you do? How should you respond? The answer is actually really simple. Repent. Because God gives more grace. He gives grace to the humble. But he opposes the proud. Listen to how James describes repentance in chapter 4 verses 7 through 10. This is such an excellent text to go to as you think about repentance in your own life. He says that it's submitting yourself to God. It's resisting the devil. It's drawing near to the Lord. And he'll draw near to you. There's promises there. Cleanse your hands. Purify your heart. That means cease and desist the evil things you've been doing in your heart and in your, with your hands. Mourn over your sin. Grieve it. Lament it. And humble yourself before God. So repentance isn't just saying you're sorry. And repentance is not even just feeling really, really sincerely sorry. Repentance is actively taking God's side against your sin and turning away from it. Stopping sinning. It's such a great text to walk through and to help us practice genuine repentance as the scriptures describes it. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that when Jesus called us to repent... He willed our whole lives to be one of repentance. And so is your life marked by this kind of remorse and brokenness and repentance? Turning away from sins. Drawing near to God. Resisting temptation. Fighting it. Putting it to death. When we fail to do this, if we continue to speak evil against our brothers and sisters, James says we're taking God's place as the judge. We're dethroning him. We're taking his place. All of that is how scripture sees the seriousness of our words when we fight and when we speak poorly of others, brothers and sisters especially. So we should be careful with our words and we should repent of this kind of thing. Quarreling, fighting, bickering. But we should also be careful to acknowledge our limits. That's the last section about words. This last section says that our words reveal our faith and we'll see whether our faith is in God or whether we're boasting in ourselves about tomorrow. If we start speaking about the future in ways that suggest we have complete control, we're showing we have an arrogant heart. It's as if we are in the place of God and that we control the future and we know what we'll do. And here he particularly speaks to maybe some of the richer in the community who were tempted to say, I'm going to go do this deal, and I'm going to go spend a year there, I'm going to go do this stuff, and they're confident about this. He says, rather, we should acknowledge that it's only if God wills will we do anything. He's not talking here about not making plans for tomorrow or the rest of the week or the future. He's just saying that we should avoid presumptuous plans, as if we can guarantee what tomorrow brings. And finally, lastly, James addresses faith in the community. That's the last blank. Faith in the community in chapter 5. He begins with a warning to the rich. 
He says those who are, are, are oppressing the poor and taking advantage of them, he reminds them that their riches are going to perish and that they'll face the judgment of God if they don't repent. We should avoid oppression. We should avoid mistreating others and taking advantage of them based on their lowly status. Next, he says that rather than doing this, believers should, and especially maybe those who are suffering, should patiently wait for God, for Christ's return. Patiently await Christ. God knows their trials. Just like he knew Job's trials, and just like with Job, he will bless them if they remain steadfast. Lastly, he talks about prayer for the church. Or sorry, second to last, he talks about prayer for the church. As they wait, what should they do? Well, they should continue to pray as a church. They should pray for church members who are suffering and sick. They should sing praises to God with those who are cheerful. They should confess their sins to one another and pray for each other. And this is part of the reason why we as a church, you know, we have a care list and we talk about those who are particularly suffering in our midst. Pray for those people. Don't forget about them. Maybe even if you know them or maybe even if you don't, reach out to them. Call them. Pray with them over the phone. Go visit with them. Seek to encourage them. In addition to our prayer list, we also give you one of these, a membership directory. And the, the point of this is to be a tool for you to commit people to prayer. And as you pray for them, pray that it would go well with them in their spirits as well as their bodies, that they would be well. It's part of the reason we covenant together to rejoice with those who rejoice and to, with tenderness and sympathy, bear each other's burdens and sorrows. Just like we see here, he talks about different kinds of members, some who are, some who are uh, suffering, some who are cheerful. Pray for them. Um, pray for God to, to comfort them in their sorrows and to strengthen them in their joy. And... We also should have a, a, a pattern and a practice of confessing our sins to one another. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There he's talking about pray that we would, uh, I think the physical healing is talked about earlier, but I think here he's talking about healed from the sickness of sin. Basically, pray for us to fight the good fight and to cease sinning. Finally, as a community, he says, the last few verses, he says, bring back those who are wandering. That's the last little part of James. The last thing he encourages them to do is to bring those who wander back. And in so doing, he says that they save that person's soul from death. One of the ways that God preserves us in the faith, even through suffering and trials, is through the community watching over each other and calling each other back. That's not just a pastor's job, that's a Christian's job, is to confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, and then even to pursue one another when someone's wandering away from the faith. That's not just the job of the pastor, it's a Christian's job. And so to try and put this all together, my melodic line is, live wholeheartedly by faith in all of life. That's very broad, sounds quite generic. But the wholehearted part is the single-minded like God and not being double-tongued, 
but wholeheartedly. And then all of life, because it talks about our works, talks about our words, it talks about oppression, it talks about poverty, it talks about prayer, it talks about sin, it talks about sickness, so much. And you can see there on your handout the themes. You've got the hearing and doing idea, like we should be faithfully not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. We should, um, our works should reveal our faith. There's lots about prayer in there from the very beginning to the very end. And then that theme of poverty and oppression, as well as our words that features right in the middle there. So some applications, simple, basic Christian uh, applications. Are we obeying God's word? Are we hearers only or are we doers of God's word? Prayer. Are we faithful in prayer? Are we praying for wisdom when we face trials? Are we praying for uh, the sick and the suffering? Are we praying that God would um, help us fight sin and help our friends in the church fight sin? The theme of uh, partiality is pretty prominent between poverty and oppression. So are you tempted to judge other people based on appearances and look down on them? And finally, are you repenting of sin? That section in chapter 4 is so, so powerful in kind of describing what repentance looks like. Let me stop there. Any questions about James? Do you know anything about like the end of the letter? Like it seems pretty like an abrupt ending. There's no like sign off, mm. say out of these people. Do you know there's a reason for that? No, I'm not. I'm not sure. Um, it does seem quite abrupt. It, it's potentially because it was, I mean, it's potentially because it was a letter that would have been circulated to, you know, they had been scattered and he's writing to a scattered group. You know, so maybe maybe because it's more of a general letter rather than specific greetings to specific people or something like that, which Paul often includes at the end of his letters. But I'm not 100% sure. Um, Michael, do you remember anything about that from your sermon series? No. Anything you'd add, Michael? Because um, you preached it not long ago. Anything that you'd add in terms of like putting the letter together or applications? Uh, one more application maybe. Yeah. That kind of covers a lot. Uh, just think about where you're double-minded. Mm. So we all have aspects of faithfulness to God and areas of compromise. So just thinking about mm. what particular areas yeah. you are tempted towards. You know, being like, well, I'm faithful here, but over there... I have, um, you know... Where are you willing to compromise in obedience to Christ? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. It, would you kind of liken it to um, sort of like, where are you tempted to be hypocritical? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, it's a powerful little letter. Powerful, like punchy. And I want to highlight one important thing is like, in the letter, he doesn't make extended reference to the atoning work of Christ. He doesn't like kind of unpack the, the doctrine of the atonement 
Um, he does talk about Jesus. He talks about being saved through Jesus. He talks about being raised up through the Lord. But the faith here, live wholeheartedly by faith in all of life. The faith here is really faith in Jesus, the gospel, right? Uh, James's own half-brother. It's believing that because of what he's done, you know, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but leaving the Father's side came, took on flesh, entered into our our situation and took on poverty so that we could become rich, you know? So the gospel is really the fuel for these behaviors. Why should we not look down on the poor? Well, if we did, we'd be looking down on Jesus, you know? And he didn't do that. He saw us in our spiritual poverty and yet came so that we might be rich in faith and in and heirs of, of the kingdom, you know? He talks about that. The same with the tongue, you know, like, you know, you know, Jesus is, the means by which we can tame our tongues and experience like words that give words that build up and edify and encourage others. It's all flows out of the gospel. It's the faith in the gospel of what Jesus has done for us that would transform us in these ways. And it's the grace for when we fail and we repent, you know, he gives more grace. Yeah. I have some books to give away. Um, one thing we saw in Hebrews is that biblical theology, tracing the storyline of the Bible um, from beginning to end, is obviously very important and significant. So I brought this book on biblical theology by uh, Nick Roark and Robert Klein. And then I brought a little book by Sinclair Ferguson, uh, a Scotsman, uh, who it's a really excellent just study of the book of James. So I'll, uh, I'll leave these up here if anyone wants to grab those. Um, let me ask Vade, will you pray to close our time together Father we pray uh, for this time that we have listened uh, from James and Hebrews uh, we learned that use is better than everything mm. and uh, Father help us to uh, show our faith in works and words and, and we can glorify our lives uh, in our lives, your name. Hmm. And Father, help us to study more your word and think about these things hmm. we have thought. And, uh, and Father, uh, today we are going to meet in Sunday service that uh, we can worship and glorify your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Hear this benediction from uh, Hebrews. Chapter 13 says, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with every good for doing his will. And may he work in us that which is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Amen.